You're listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast, exploring the rich, flavorful history of Manitoba food and the people who make it, sell it, and eat it. From the packing table to the dinner table, from restaurant specials to grandma's secret recipes, we consider the cultural, social, and commercial aspects of Manitoba food and what it means to us. I'm your host, Kent Davies. As per usual, I'm joined by Manitoba business historian, Professor Janice Thiessen. Hey Kent, what's in the pantry for us today? Today we're learning about the Ukrainian dish kucha with Ali Skorchuk and her grandparents. Yes, Ali was our summer student for the Manitoba Food History Truck course, and sadly this episode features the final interview we did on the Manitoba Food History Truck. Yeah, this phase of the project is winding down, and we'll have to say goodbye to that old truck. I know, I'm sad. Yeah, well, we got a few good years out of her anyway. Indeed, despite COVID. Yeah. But the project is not ending. We will still be doing interviews, making podcasts, and publishing a book. So, yeah, lots to come. So back to the episode, have you ever had kucha before? No, never. Um, But I was happy to taste it now. And it's another traditional dish that holds a lot of significance for Ukrainians. For sure, as you'll hear... In this episode, there's a lot of interesting stories and traditions attached to this dish, and it helps Ali tell the story of her family, the Canadian-Ukrainian diaspora, and the importance of preserving their culture, especially now at a time when Ukrainians are facing such unimaginable loss and suffering caused by war. Absolutely. It's important to keep telling stories like these so that we remember where we came from and so that we can share that culture with others. You may also hear a familiar voice during the episode. Um, I remember Allie letting me review the script before recording the narration, and to my astonishment, I had lines. (laughs) I'm sure it wasn't hard for you. Well, hopefully I don't sound too out of place in this episode. Allie did a great job. I I am excited to hear it. Uh, Let's have a listen. and flipping it up into the ceiling and if it sticks to the ceiling you'll have good crops for the coming year it also uh, if that kucha drops from the ceiling and somebody catches it they'll have good luck for the year that was Dan Skorchuk a third generation Ukrainian Canadian my grandpa, and expert in our family's Ukrainian heritage and traditions. My name is Ali Skorchuk, and today I will be your guide to becoming an honorary member of the Skorchuk family. Grandpa was just talking about Kucha. If you're part of the 1.36 million Canadians who identify at least one of their ethnic origins as Ukrainian, maybe Kucha is familiar to you or a part of your own family's traditions. If not, allow us to explain. Kucha is a very old and ancient recipe that was, has been used by the Ukrainians for centuries and even a thousand years. <laughs> Basically, it's, a, it's a, a dish that is eaten 
just before the Christmas, uh, the Christmas uh, dishes. Nowadays, uh, my grandma is the one who makes the kucha for Ukrainian Christmas Eve, which we celebrate every year on January 6th. Her name is Shirley Skorchuk, and she is one of the experts on our family's traditional Ukrainian recipes. What ingredients do you typically use to make kucha, Grandma? Well, the wheat, the wheat is the main ingredient. Uh, then there's different uh, things that you can add to it, to, to your taste. Usually, to the basic uh, kucha recipe, uh, it's kucha and it's poppy seed. And then if you add a, um, a syrup base to give it some liquid, uh, but also raisins can be added, walnuts can be added. It's up to the person's taste. So that's what kucha is. It's basically like a wheat porridge with like a honey sauce. I would eat it every day for breakfast if I could, but it's a special dish that our family only eats on Ukrainian Christmas Eve. It's just, it, that's how special it is. That's how special it is for, for good health, prosperity. That's what we believe, so. One little story uh, I have about kucha is that uh, my grandfather, uh, before the meal, would always go to the barn and, and serve his uh, livestock, uh, give him an extra meal of, of hay and oats or whatever they, whatever they had. But it was interesting, I was reading in a book where uh, some of the uh, people, when they make uh, kucha and the, and, the, and the Christmas dishes, they mix up a concoction of, of all these foods and they also serve it to their animals. So even the animals end up having kucha. So where do all these traditions come from, do you think? Who taught us all these things? It's our ancestors. And all these traditions, too, have been brought here from the old country. You mean from Ukraine? Yeah. And the families growing that, that has, has brought it here. And uh, there's, like you say, there's somebody does it this way, somebody does it this way, somebody, but it's still kucha, mm -hmm. regardless. There's just so many. In our family, there's three different ways to, that, that it's made. But the beauty but, part about these traditions is it gives you a sense of belonging, belonging to a culture mm -hmm. that's yours. It's, it's, it's your motherland, it's your mother, you know, and uh, that's what's important about Yeah, you're just proud, the pride is there, you yeah. know, it's in your heart. And the thing, what is uh, so interesting is that um, my parent, my mom, and your grandpa's mom made the kucha. Mm -hmm. And now that they're gone, it's passed on to us to do it. And your mom is starting to do it. So, guess who's <laughs> next? <laughs> you know, and that, yeah, and that's, uh, that's how the traditions are carried on. And they're mm -hmm. gonna change a little to what, you know, what times are like, or what people like, and and uh, but you know they're 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 uh, uh, rooted deeply in our hearts. We know it's something that that you just don't forget. 
But wait, is that really true? Of course, our traditions are very important to our identity and culture. But was it really only us that allowed these traditions to be preserved for future generations? And how much exactly have we forgotten? Certainly, there were some external factors that allowed our family to remember certain traditions, but to forget other pieces of culture over the past five generations. Let's take a little trip back to the arrival of the Skorchuk family in Canada. This was a deciding moment for our family customs. Will they be able to exist outside Ukraine and within a completely foreign Canadian cultural sphere? Or will they slowly become homogenized into Canadian norms, eventually integrated beyond recognition? The earliest score trip that came to Canada was in 1905. Uh, it was a, um, a Williams, So the Scorchucks came over quite a long time ago, but I have to ask you, William and even Scorchuck, like, Those don't really sound like Ukrainian names to me. You're right. His name has been anglicized from Vasil. Even the spelling of Skorchuk was changed. Apparently, it was common practice for Ukrainians in Canada to anglicize their names in order to avoid discrimination. But of course, great-great-great-grandpa Skorchuk wasn't alone on his journey to settling in Canada. He was part of a large wave of Ukrainian immigration. This included around 170,000 Ukrainians that immigrated to Canada between 1896 and 1914, making them one of the most prominent immigrant groups. Ukrainian immigrants were settled almost entirely in Manitoba and what was known as the Northwest Territories, in other words, the districts of Assiniboia, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. So where exactly did he settle? On a plot of land approximately 50 kilometers north of Yorkton. He came with his wife and four children. Actually, by 1905, when he arrived in Assiniboia, the Ukrainian immigrant communities were quite populated. In 1901, several years before his arrival, there were already around 4,500 Ukrainian settlers in the Yorkton and Selkotes area. Settling in a new country halfway across the world must have been an arduous task for them. Yes, it was. As Wasil made the journey on the SS Montreal, he was quickly approaching a very difficult situation, filled with constant adjustment and plagued by deep insecurity and frustration. Scholar Vladimir K. notes that upon arrival in Canada, In order to overcome these hardships and to maintain their psychological balance, the immigrants tried to reconstruct an environment which was familiar to them, one similar to that which they had left behind in Europe. This included settling in village groups with houses built in the Ukrainian way and naming many of their towns after the Ukrainian villages that they left behind. So what was the popular response to the influx of immigrants? What did the anglicized Canadians think about their new Ukrainian neighbors? 
Well, many Canadians were skeptical and held prejudice toward the new Ukrainian immigrants, but a portion of their opinions would change. In July of 1903, general colonizing agent C.W. Spears published a report on the Ukrainian settlement in Rosthern to the superintendent of immigration in Ottawa. In the report, Spears explained how he was, quote, astonished at the progress of these people, their agricultural equipment, their horses and their cattle, and they've built good, comfortable homes. Their adaptability to our customs, both in manner and dress, their anxiety to acquire the English language with many other qualities possessed by these people, make them the most desirable settlers. So for some, Ukrainian immigrants were considered more desirable? There were definitely some Canadians that supported the government's immigration policy. An interview by the Montreal Gazette with Fred Villeneuve in 1901 shows a similar sentiment. He describes Ukrainian immigrants as, quote, fine settlers, and in a comparatively short time will develop into good and patriotic Canadians. These testimonies paint the Ukrainian way of life as a practice that was somewhat arbitrarily deemed acceptable in the eyes of some Canadians. Although Ukrainians were expected to assimilate into Canadian Anglophone culture, maybe the perception of Ukrainian culture as more acceptable allowed them to hold on to more of their Ukrainianness through the process of assimilation. And what about the people who were against Ukrainian immigration to Canada? Much of the Anglophone conservative press held negative views of the new Ukrainian immigrants, describing them as, quote, the scum of Europe, unfit to be considered white. Because of this, some critics pushed for the segregation of Ukrainians and other Slavic immigrants in order to not, quote, dilute the British character of the West, while others argued that they should be dispersed from other Ukrainians in order to speed up the process of assimilation. So what actually ended up happening? Generally, Ukrainians continued to settle in blocks as they were in the old country because this aligned with the Canadian government's ultimate plan to cultivate and settle the plains. This allowed them to some extent to continue perpetuating their own culture rather than interacting with Canadian culture which would have sped up cultural change. On the other hand, indigenous people living on the prairies were forced into farming, treaties, and eventually onto reserves after the bison population virtually went extinct, crumbling their economy. Author James Daschuk of Clearing the Plains explains that with completion of the numbered treaties, the blueprint was set for conversion of the indigenous population to agriculture and settlement of the prairies with European farmers. In this instance, Ukrainian immigrants were very privileged to be allowed to continue with their own cultural practices, including farming, allowing them to pass on more of their traditions to future generations. So then you would say Ukrainians are traditionally good farmers? Yes. After all, much of Ukrainian territory is prime area for cultivating grains. Aside from its benefits to the Canadian government's expansion plan, tending to crops and gardening was one of the primary ways that Ukrainian settlers were able to survive in this new environment. Although destitution occurred amongst some families, their condition generally improved after the family was able to establish their first modest crop. 
The foods that settlers grew provided more than just sustenance for their family. They also reinforced their Ukrainian ethnic identity, as many foods hold cultural value. Even today, grandma reminds me of how symbolic these ingredients are, like in kucha. The, the wheat represents the straw of the manger, mm -hmm. the honey and poppy seed represents the Christ child, and the honey represents the spirit of the blood of Christ. The wheat is the important ingredient. In fact, according to Canadian food historian Thelma Bearstein, quote, there is no aspect of Ukrainian life or afterlife that is not celebrated with the holiness of grain. Wheat is an integral part of virtually every important event in Ukrainian culture. For example, traditional bread is served at holiday functions like Pascha at Easter and Kolacha at Christmas. And another symbolic bread called Korovai is presented to the newlyweds at their wedding. Even at funerals, grains of wheat may accompany the dead in their burial. So you have a different bread for every occasion? Yes, and let me tell you, they are tasty. There are some things that we just don't go without in my family. Salt, sour cream, onions, and bread. Maybe the moms, grandmas, and aunts that made our food may not have explicitly thought about their effect on our culture, but food has come to be an integral aspect of Ukrainian-Canadian identity. New layers of symbolism are added to Ukrainian foods as time progresses. For example, back in newly established Ukrainian settlements in Canada, it was common for settlers to sell their first crop of wheat in order to sponsor family and friends that they left back in Ukraine to join them in Canada. In this context, not only does the wheat carry its ancient cultural significance from the old country, but it also represents the reunion of loved ones. That's wonderful. I'm starting to see why wheat is so special to Ukrainians. Yes, but it definitely hasn't been all rosy. Going further back into Ukrainian history reveals a trajectory filled with food seizures and shortages, famine, and countless invasions, including Stalin's death by starvation, a genocide designed to exterminate Ukrainian peasants. Because no family was left untouched from these traumas in Ukraine and in the diaspora alike, food traditions are sacred and valuable. They have allowed Ukrainians to link ourselves to our ancestors and preserve aspects of our culture for the next generation to enjoy, just like a nice dill pickle. Although today I have the privilege of enjoying the traditions of my ancestors in Canada, we are also currently at the crossroads of another deciding moment for Ukrainian heritage and culture. February 24th, 2022. Early in the morning, Russian President Vladimir Putin launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Russian attack on Ukraine is nothing new. It's an old wound that has never been allowed to heal.
then you would think that in this day and age, uh, you know, what we know, what we've, where we've been, what we've done, that there should no, not even be a hint of war anywhere. It's so extreme there. Like there, there's, there's a, there's a person from Russia, Putin, who's just trying to annihilate everything in, in his way, and it's just can't understand that. I just don't see the reason for it. I mean, Canada's always our, you know, my country, my my home, my, you know, but uh, we all came from somewhere, and, and uh, Ukraine is where we came from. Grandpa, can you remind me of how that Ukrainian Christmas tradition about the candle goes? is put in the window and lit and it's for any wayward stranger that's walking and hasn't got a place to eat or a place to go to keep warm he sees the candle in the window and he's welcome to that house i know it's not christmas but i think we should put a candle in the window for all of our brothers and sisters in ukraine who are going through so much to remind them that they still have a place to go, to eat, to keep warm, even if it is on the other side of the world. I don't know how our culture and our people will fare at the end of all of this, but I do know that our Ukrainianness is something that I could never forget. You've been listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast, produced by myself, Ken Davies, and Ali Skorchuk. This episode was written and narrated by Ali Skorchuk. Kimberly Moore creates the photos and images that accompany each podcast. Our theme music is by Robert Kenning. Preserves is recorded at the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center. You can check out the OHC and all the work that we do at oralhistorycenter.ca. For more Manitoba Food History Project content, information, and events, go to manitobafoodhistory.ca. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have a Manitoba food story and you want to share it, contact us by clicking on the contact link on the website. Preserves is made possible from a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Thanks for listening.